Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio, and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's exclusive South Asian station. Let's go. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, and Indian. I've had conversations about life with people of every walk, and as I frame the South Asian experience, I seek out the stories of people and their purpose. And what they tell me over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. On this week's episode, my first guest is Jennifer Rajkumar from Queens, who's running for the New York State Assembly and is poised to become the first South Asian woman in history in the New York State Legislature. Later, we're joined by Professor Manisha Sinha, a historian and a leading authority on slavery and abolition, sharing thoughts on her own journey and the intersections past and present between Black America and the South Asian community. Stay tuned. In 2020, we are often faced with the question, what do you stand for? For her whole life, my next guest, Jennifer Rajkumar, has been standing for her values, her family, vulnerable and marginalized people, and now her community. Jennifer is running for state assembly in New York, representing Queens, as she aims to become the first Indian woman ever in the New York State Legislature in Albany. Jennifer was born and raised in New York and has dedicated her entire life to public service, graduating from Stanford's Law School and returning to New York to advocate on behalf of women, youth, and vulnerable individuals in a variety of important issues. We were so incredibly grateful that Jennifer was able to catch up with us after a long and busy day of campaigning and working very hard already to listen and engage with the people of Queens. I chatted with her about her background and how it has informed her journey into public service and politics. We're so thrilled to have you on the program, Jennifer. Thank you so much for being here. Thrilled to be here. Thank you. You know, you were born and raised in New York as your parents uh, emigrated here and settled in Queens. So I'm just so curious, how did growing up in a, a South Asian family really sort of help shape your own personal value system and what was that like to, to grow up in that environment? Well, I feel very blessed. Uh, so many of my values are Indian. And often I refer back to things that my parents told me. Like, for example, the story of Arjuna. Uh, when they want to tell me to focus, they often tell me the story of Arjuna, who only looked at the eye of the bird. And that is why he was able to succeed where his brothers failed. Because when he shot the arrow, he only saw the eye of the bird. So when my parents say focus, they, they always use that tale. So to this day, I have these stories in my mind. So really a South Asian culture uh, has been so important to me um, and guides me all the time. Yeah, you know, that sort of idea of perseverance and focus, there's so many great examples of that. Um, was it, uh, did you, were you in an environment where you had other South Asians or Indians growing up with you as well? Not too many. A lot of my upbringing was in Westchester County. And I often joke that my friends were the deer and the raccoons and the rabbits. Uh, it so was pretty, pretty uh, you know, upstate or rural 
But still, you know, it sounds like a lot of really great Indian or South Asian influences um, as well. Did you ever read Amar Chitrakatha? Was that a a mainstay in, um, you know, getting some of those great Mahabharata stories out there? Those comic books were just incredible. Uh, It's amazing how much we learn from those comic books. One thing is that I grew up around, yes, these animals, the green grass, but also books and imagination. And like so many South Asian and Indian families, my parents made education the center of the household. Um, And so that cultivated a great imagination in me. Um, And one thing that my family did that was very unique uh, was was this, uh, a family court system. So when my parents first immigrated here, they were so proud to be in America. And my mom would always proudly say, this is a democratic household. So when we have a fight in the house, we're going to solve it by the family court system. So we'd all gather in the kitchen and one person would be a judge and one person would be a lawyer for one side and one person would be a lawyer for the other side. And we just argue it out. And I grew up believing that that was normal. And years (laughs) later, I became a lawyer and my mom still wonders why. Wow. Well, I mean, that's about as, uh, you know, great of a setup for, for your future as it gets. Do you, to this day now, are there things that, you know, you particularly do every day that are, that's uniquely Indian? It's a great question. Yes. Uh, I say the Gayatri Mantra, okay, which very few people know, actually. Right. But uh, when it's a particularly rough moment or I have a big challenge ahead or I'm nervous about something, uh, immediately my mind will go right into that mantra that I learned from home. Uh, it's an incredible meditation. And it's now so many people in the United States are now adopting meditation and mindfulness. And that's something that as an Indian American, I grew up with it right at home. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the idea of having that pause, the getting centered, certainly meditation as a um, vehicle uh, for really sort of you know, slowing down, so to speak, especially in a very, very chaotic world. But um, I'm not so sure that there can be anything more uh, Indian or South Asian than the root of that in in the Gayatri Mantra in particular. Um, So that's terrific. You know, from your perspective, given your, you know, upbringing and sort of the idea of what you just mentioned being uniquely South Asian or Indian, what does it feel like to be a, a South Asian American in 2020, what are some of the things that we as a community, you know, face right now? Well, that's a great question for me at this particular moment, because I just made history as the first South Asian woman to be elected to a government office in New York State. And I did it from South Queens, which has a very heavy South Asian population, and where my parents first got their start in the United States. So what I'm seeing is uh, our immigrant community here in South Queens, uh, much of it working class, people Mm -hmm. who work 25 hours a day. They'll work as hard as necessary. And all they want to do is move up. So I'm seeing our community and its aspirations every single day. And as an assembly member, one thing that I want to do for our community is make sure that the community can navigate American institutions because our community works so hard. But how I want to help 
is by giving guidance so that the hard work can really bear fruit. So navigating education, uh, navigating our courtrooms, navigating government. Um, I will be someone whose office will always be open for our community to do those things. We're joined today by Jennifer Rajkumar. She's our guest on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a short break, we're going to talk a little bit more about how she came into public service. Stay tuned. Check out ruckusavenueradio.com for more information for the latest on station programming and more. So welcome back. We're joined today by Jennifer Rajkumar, who is running for uh, New York State Assemblywoman. Um, Jennifer, I wanted to ask you one thing um, about sort of knowing that public service was your calling. So reflecting back, was there a moment or a particular aha uh, time period where you first knew that public service was going to be sort of your calling? I grew up in a service household. My whole, my whole family's doctors, physicians. So helping people is at the root of my upbringing. Hmm. But there were additional influences. Once when I was in eighth grade history class, I asked the teacher a simple question. I asked, why are there no women in the history textbook? It was an innocent question. I was just curious, why are there no women in the book? And my teacher said, I will tell you one thing. Behind every man, there was a woman. Hmm. And that didn't satisfy me. It wasn't enough. Right. So why weren't the women in front? There right. were so many unanswered questions. So I embarked on a study of women throughout all of history. And I discovered where the women were. There were women suffragists who went on a hunger strike and risked their lives so that American women could vote. There were women all over the world who did courageous deeds. And that inspired me. Um, I decided to dedicate my life to public service, um, also in large part uh, because I was so grateful for everything that this country gave my family. Mm. My mom was born in a mud hut in India. My parents immigrated to this country with $300 in a suitcase. And this country gave them opportunity to rise up. So I wanted to give back to honor that and also to give voice to women and other marginalized groups that needed a voice. And then I became a civil rights attorney and was really happy to practice law, then to work for the governor of New York. And now I'm before you as your state assemblywoman elect which is an amazing journey. And, you know, for someone who's spent uh, a lot of time really um, advocating for vulnerable groups in particular, when you now think about young women or youth in general, immigrant communities, 
Um, what do you think are sort of priority areas now for these groups or at large even to continue to advocate for? My district is 70% minority. It's incredible. And uh, one thing is that the struggles of working people are very real. I see it every day. Uh, many Indians and South Asians generally and South Queens are Uber drivers or taxi cab drivers. And it's so important that workers uh, have rights. They get their, the pay that they're deserved. They get fair benefits that Uber drivers are not misclassified as gig workers mm -hmm. so that you know, there are so many loopholes that can be exploited so that workers uh, don't receive equitable treatment. So yes. definitely uh, workers' rights you know, is a huge, huge issue for the community, but also recovering from the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. You know, that's huge right now uh, for many members of our community. And that's why strong leadership is needed now more than ever. Yeah, has that made it easier in some ways because you know, for you really coming from a strong background of public service already, and you mentioned how um, your, your family and your upbringing really sort of primed you for that. Um, has that made it easier to really tackle some of these big challenges? Or is there something, you know, fresh and, and new that you learn sort of on a day to day basis when you're navigating through problems and getting to know the community even better? I learned something new every day. I mean, one thing that strikes me is that we are a lot more similar than we know. Yeah. Uh, people think that they're different from each other, but they're actually not. Like, uh, I, uh, as someone who's run for office, I've met people at all, on all sides of the spectrum uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to um, income. Okay, all classes of people, all ethnicities. And uh, people generally all want the same thing. Um, and that's very heartening to know. Yeah. And, and I think as you, it seems like as you get to know the community even better, knowing what uh, common bonds um, people have, it hopefully makes it that much easier to now offer that representation. And, you know, as you are um, poised to be the Assemblywoman-elect, um, how does that feel for you personally? Um, does, is this the sort of ultimate emblem of, of democracy? And um, does this uh, now sort of uh, allow you to really step into that governing role? I feel grateful. Uh, I'm filled with gratitude every single day that I get to be in this role, uh, that I get to serve. It's continually interesting. It's full of meaning and purpose. Uh, so I feel incredibly grateful. It's surreal. The historical quality of it is very surreal for me uh, to think sure. that uh, I have made history for our community. Um, I know that I'm not going to be the last South Asian elected. I'm the first one, but I will not be the last. And I'm honored to have helped pioneer uh, this movement for us in politics. I'm excited to see where it will go for us. Well, um, we're excited with you. My guest today is uh, Jennifer Rajkumar. Um, after a quick break again, we're going to come back and spend some more time with uh, Jennifer. Please stay tuned.
This is Samika, and you're tuned in to Ruckus Avenue Radio, exclusively on Dash Radio. So we're back, everyone, uh, on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My guest today is Jennifer Rajkumar. Um, Jennifer, you recently tweeted out a quote from the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg that said, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. So what does her legacy mean to you personally as, as you go forward now? She was my favorite Supreme Court justice, but she was so much more than that. She was a pioneer and an inspiration. And as a young lawyer, I had the honor of working at the ACLU Women's Rights Project, which was founded by Ruth Bader Ginsburg and wow. was the platform from which she litigated landmark sex discrimination cases that established that Sex discrimination is protected by 14th Amendment equal protection. Um, so uh, there I got to help litigate cases on behalf of low-wage immigrant women workers. And I can't wait to carry on her legacy in any way I can uh, as a legislator and as a lawyer and as a proud American. Um, I um, am so grateful to have been even a small part of her work and legacy. That's terrific. And I mean, even as you now are poised to be um, the first South Asian woman in New York State Assembly history, what does this moment mean for you? What does it mean for our South Asian community? And in almost in thinking of, you know, Justice Ginsburg, what does this mean more globally for women of color? I truly believe that the sky is the limit for us for the South Asian community, for women of color, for women all over the world. Look what's happening at the presidential level. We have uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, uh, who may very well be the first South Asian woman elected to the VP role. Um, this is really an incredible moment. And you see it happening at the local level all over the country. You see young people, you see women, women of color, South Asians, running all over the place in, in huge numbers. Um, and I believe that uh, people like young candidates, people like women candidates, uh, people uh, think that it's, it's fresh and it's new. And so from what I have seen, um, the sky is, is the limit. And, and you mentioned earlier that, you know, this is, you're certainly making history as the first, but definitely not the last. And if you were giving advice to somebody who was thinking of entering uh, a race or running for public office or getting involved in their community, what kind of advice would you have for them? I would say be yourself because there's a lot of pressures to be somebody else or to take positions that you may not exactly believe in and you don't have to do that. Um, right. if, if you're just yourself and you come from a true place and you evaluate things with a clear mind, you'll probably find that others are on the same page. So it's very liberating in a way just to know that all you really have to do is, is be yourself, be authentic, 
and and that that will carry the day. That's great advice, and you know, um, I wonder if this notion of people thinking that running for public office or being civically engaged can be very daunting and time consuming, but in the end, um, and, and very taxing. But in the end, it sounds like, um, particularly using your example, um, it's not only just quite a journey, but the gratification and the appreciation that you have now going forward really um, makes up for all of that hard work. Definitely. You get to meet so many different types of people, which really expands your horizons. And that's an incredible experience. Um, and you get to serve um, and live your passion every single day. Uh, it's really a tremendous lifestyle. Yes, it's busy. Yes, it's hard work. Yes, it's late hours. Yes, we're interviewing right now at 11 p.m. But, uh, but there's nothing like it. Well, we're, we're grateful that you're here with us and, and taking a few moments from, from your day. I wanted to ask you this because um, in my experiences, I've helped teach and mentor um, other physicians and doctors who are in training. And we talk in medicine about the idea of entrustment, meaning that you know, providers of healthcare to patients really need to be entrustable to carry out their duties. And we put so much faith in, in the people who are helping us with our health. So in a parallel way, what makes you entrustable um, to be a state assembly leader and now elected to serve your constituents? Well, I think that people can trust me uh, because if you look at my track record of work, sure. uh, not just passion today, but it's been passion for a long time, um, expressed through my legal work for vulnerable people, expressed through my work in government for immigrants. Um, so uh, when you look at that, you know, I think that that makes me um, entrustable to people. We're, we're looking at your prior uh, accomplishments and achievements with um, great awe, and we're excited about all the new accomplishments and achievements that you're going to bring to our community and certainly representing your district and, in fact, um, our community and women um, of color in, in such great ways going forward. Jennifer, it's been great to meet you, and thank you so much for being a guest on our program. We hope you'll come back and visit with us uh, again. Anytime. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about people and their purpose in the South Asian diaspora. And what they're basically saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific on RuckusAvenueRadio.com. So in the United States... 2020 has been a year of urgency, of intersections, and of historical significance. To me, this was a good opportunity to have a conversation with a historian who is both a South Asian American and a leading authority on the history of slavery and abolition. That's what led me to Manisha Sinha, who not only fits that description, but has written eloquently on the importance of this historical backdrop and the intersections, current and past, of South Asian Americans and the Black American narrative. Born and raised in India, Manisha is a professor of history at the University of Connecticut, and when she came to the U.S. in 1984, she was starting out as a graduate student. We chatted about a lot of things, and I asked her about how her journey started. Manisha was also proudly wearing a Ruth Bader Ginsburg shirt, and that was certainly on our mind as we began.
Manisha, it's so great for you to be here on the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Abhay. I mentioned it before, but I, I can't go without um, complimenting you on your T-shirt. Um, what a wonderful message to everyone. Yes, I've been wearing it for the last few days, and my sons are threatening to throw it into the laundry. Um, but uh, in fact, one of them presented me with it a few years ago, uh, but I thought it was appropriate. You know, for those on the radio broadcast, um, you know, Professor uh, Sinha is actually wearing a Ruth Bader Ginsburg shirt, which um, we can all sort of celebrate. Um, I wanted to, in the theme of our show, which is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I, I really wanted to sort of um, ask you about this as someone who grew up in India and the backdrop of that culture it was probably likely very common as a grad student to present in the United States in 1984, but probably not so common to be among those sort of enthusiastically pursuing African-American studies. So how was this interest and intellectual curiosity cultivated and what were the events that sort of brought you to that point? Well, you know, I come from a family of historians, really. Uh, my father was in the army and uh, he, in his spare time, uh, wrote history books and books about um, higher defense organization. And we just talked about history all the time uh, around our dining table. And all of us, all four of us ended up doing history. Uh, my sister oh, wow. teaches at the University of Michigan. Yeah. And I teach uh, at the University of Connecticut. So um, I got interested, though, in, uh, in American history. Uh, my sister is a South Asianist, teaches British Empire. Um, but I was really interested in American history because uh, I did a lot of reading on my own growing up in India. Television then, and this will show you how old I am, uh, just consisted of farmers' shows. And it was the state-run TV, Doordarshan, and yeah. you could not watch it. It was so awful. Um, so I ended up doing a lot of reading on my own, and I remember reading a lot about the civil rights movement, uh, and especially the ways in which Mahatma Gandhi had influenced uh, Dr. King and some other civil rights activists. And that really piqued my interest in uh, the fight for black equality in the United States, and I decided to study American history after I got my BA in Delhi University. And uh, there was really no place where you could go to a graduate program for American history in India uh, at that time. Uh, you could go to Osmania University in Hyderabad, but they did more American literature rather than history. And I decided I would just, you know, apply, you sit for the GREs and apply to, to a university, which I did and uh, ended up, you know, coming here. Uh, and uh, just my interest in this question of, race and democracy in the United States, I kind of worked my way back to slavery. You know, you wrote, you've written about this, that certainly because of its uniqueness or um, the idea that when people who were your colleagues or future colleagues, um, you know, may have been actually either taken aback or surprised, do you still get that kind of reaction when people learn of your work or, or learn of your background at all? Not so much. You know, I've been in this country now for, oh my God, over 30 years. Yeah. And when I first came here, there were just not that many South Asian students and certainly not that many Indian Americans uh, in the humanities. Uh, most of them tended to be in STEM 
uh, you know, they were engineers or stud, you know, um, just about any scientific background. And many of them actually did not go to medical school here. They'd go to medical school in India, then come here. Uh, But but they were really STEM students. And so I was a bit of an anomaly. And, um, you know, I think I was the only Indian American in my graduate program at Columbia University um, in the history department. Um, there were people from all over the world there, but I was the only Indian American studying U.S. history. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it was rather unique, uh, but I stuck with it. You know, specific to that experience as someone who was um, born and raised in India, um, in your studies and in your scholarship and in your academic pursuits, what, what have you learned uh, perhaps from being um, a historian Yeah, so I am a historian of slavery abolition and uh, the Civil War, which is pretty, you know, mainstream in in U.S. history, in early U.S. history. Um, So I do African-American history, but, you know, my first book was on uh, slaveholders, Mm. on uh, American slaveholders and their ideas about slavery and states' rights constitutional theory and how they use that uh, to argue for an independent slavery-based nation. Um, so I see myself as a kind of a specialist in the long 19th century of the United States. But of course, it's completely connected to the Black experience because right. African-American history, as you can well imagine, uh, lies at the heart of American history in the 19th century when the burning question of the day, of course, was slavery and which led to an enormous war Uh, in which more Americans died than, you know, the two world wars, the Vietnam War, the Korean War combined. So it's an enormous event in American history. And the impact of that, of course, from that era, certainly being felt today. And in that development of, you know, that specialty, if you will, as a historian, and developing your own professional identity, what kind of effect has it had on you as a South Asian American? So, you know, it's really interesting. I came to this country when I was 21 years old. Uh, I guess I was a bit like Kamala Harris's mother, um, pretty much on my own. Uh, My sister, though, was here. Both my sisters actually had preceded me uh, for graduate work. Uh, But when I was at Columbia, I was all by myself in in New York City. And that was an interesting experience. Um, I would constantly be mistaken for a Latina because there was a fairly large Latino population. It's only when I went to Queens to do my grocery shopping that people sort of recognized me as, as, right. as Indian American. Um, and now I've lived in this country for you know, over 30 years. Um, and I guess I'm a typical immigrant. Um, and there was a time when I always felt more at home in India. But now, you know, and I'm just so used to, to living in the US that when I go back home, I feel more American than I thought I ever would. And as a um, as an expert in in this specialty that you that you note, uh, particularly uh, looking at at slavery as an issue and and the African American experience that even transcends today, has that at all uh, you know changed you as a South Asian or a South Asian American? Not so much changed me because I think many of my ideas about 
um, you know, the black struggle for freedom or the struggle for black citizenship and rights was so connected with my own understanding of the Indian national movement mm-hmm. uh, and, and decolonization in India and, and the sort of anti-imperial movements all over the world. I mean, I've always seen those connections. And if anything, my sort of scholarly study of the subject has kind of reinforced it uh, a little bit. Um, So I guess I'm not a typical Indian American immigrant in the sense that I have always um, sort of identified with some of the struggles that African Americans have faced in this country. And I come to that Uh, issue with a certain amount of knowledge about it. A lot of my Indian American friends uh, do not know that history and Mm -hmm. they cannot fathom why people can't just get over and and succeed in life just as they have. And I have to tell them that, you know, they came here in in a relatively privileged fashion. You know, the United States allows immigration from India of highly skilled and qualified and, um, you know, we become model, you know, the model minority as such. And we right. see in this country, even though, of course, many people also struggle, uh, that's also maybe a bit of a myth. Uh, but certainly most of the Indian Americans I interact with, I have to sort of explain to them a little bit more about the history of African Americans in this country and the kinds of struggles that they have had to endure, which is unique when it comes to comparing them Uh, to, let's say, Irish immigrants, German immigrants, and more recently in the 20th century with Asian American immigrants. My guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Manisha Sinha. After a quick break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the African American experience in 2020 and some of the intersections with our South Asian community. So stay tuned. Listen to Ruckus Avenue Radio at dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, 7 days a week to our station. Welcome back, everyone. My guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Manisha Sinha. Manisha, I wanted to ask you, in in 2020, we're seeing um, this intersection of Black Americans and South Asian Americans in our diaspora, certainly being played out very prominently today, especially with the nomination of Senator Kamala Harris. But are there touch points for this that have resonated um, from a historical perspective that go deeper than just the nomination of Senator Harris? Yes, I think so. A lot of people are not aware of the fact that there have been intersections uh, between Indian Americans and the African American community that go way back uh, to the 18th century. So when I was doing research for my last book, which is a big history of abolition, the abolition of slavery from the American Revolution to the Civil War, I found that there were actually Indian Laskars, as they were called, they were mainly from Bengal, uh, Indian sailors 
who would end up in airports in in New York or in Boston, uh, and many times they'd be enslaved, like African Americans. And uh, the abolition societies that existed then, one of them was the New York Manumission Society, uh, which Alexander Hamilton, by the way, those of you mm-hmm. who might have seen Hamilton, belonged yeah. to. Um, uh, you know, they fought these cases. And that case just jumped out at me when I was reading the minutes of the New York Manumission Society. Um, and being Indian American, I was noticing things that most American historians have probably ignored. Right. Uh, I also came across a, a black abolitionist family, um, the de Grasse family. They descended from uh, an Indian woman and a Frenchman. And uh, in fact, uh, they were the first black doctors. I mean, I guess the Indian genes were working then too. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it is. But, uh, but uh, John de Grasse uh, became the first black doctor in, in the United States. And the de Grasse family was known to have descended from what they call, quote, a Hindu woman. Mm. Um, so there were many such instances of in- intermixture. There were uh, Indians, uh, people of Indian descent who fought in the Civil War in the United States colored regiment. So, you know, mm. as a Civil War specialist, as a person who studies slavery and abolition, all this jumped out at me. Um, So there's a long history of interconnection. Um, There's also a connection with abolitionists who were fighting for black rights here, both black and white men and women, who were critics of British imperialism in India in the Mm -hmm. mid-19th century. Um, So, for instance, the Great Revolt of 1857, um, that was described as, you know, an example of native, quote, barbarism and cruelty, towards the British and was actually rather brutally suppressed by the British, most American abolitionists looking at it said, wait a minute, this is exactly the way slaveholders talk about slave rebellions. Right. Um, so I just kept coming across all these things. I found uh, an anti-slavery bazaar in Boston that was selling the locks of hair of Raja Ram Mohan Roy, the hmm. super former and Indian nationalist, the way they sold locks of hair of British abolitionists. Right. Like before, so that again jumped out at me. Um, I found references to Rabindranath Tagore's father, Dwarkanath Tagore. I found him addressing meetings of abolitionists and anti-slavery societies. Uh, so all this, which most American historians ignored, uh, meant a great deal to me, and I included it in my book called, uh, in a chapter called "The Abolitionist International." So these interconnections between Indian and African-American communities actually go way back. And, and a lot of it we are not aware of. Uh, right. In the 20th century, of course, the story is better known. Um, certainly in California, the large Punjabi uh, immigration, um, you know, to uh, California and Canada or the immigration of indentured labor from India to Guyana and the Caribbean. Those stories are better known now. Um, there's another very good book called Bengali Harlem that looks at Bengalis who, who settled out and intermarried uh, mm. with the black community in Harlem. They were mainly uh, tradesmen, shopkeepers. Yeah. Uh, so there are all these stories that we are uncovering now of the South Asian presence in the United States that goes much further back uh, than um, the recent immigration. It's interesting that you mentioned that in that way, because, you know, hearing this, there's such a rich history and so many parallel pathways. 
as well as convergences between the two communities. Not knowing some of this history, um, what do you think that does for the South Asian community when, as they are reflecting on you know, the times of today, particularly with the climate as it is reflecting upon Black Lives Matter and some of the you know, more recent events that we've had this year? That's a great question. You know, um, as a community, we South Asians and we Indians in particular can be rather insular. You know, mm-hmm. we can sometimes be moving around with, with just people from our region or a particular uh, caste background or a particular religion. Um, you know, that happens a lot. Um, there is, of course, now greater sense of an Indian national identity, too, which I think is, is good, too, for most Indian Americans. But the tendency amongst many immigrants, especially those who, who work really hard to make it uh, in a, in a, in a foreign country, you know, in a, in a country that, you know, they have not been born and brought up in as maybe younger generations of Indian Americans have, uh, the tendency can also be to distance yourself uh, mm-hmm. from the poor or from African Americans because, uh, and it's a traditional tactic that immigrants from Ireland, from Southern and Eastern Europe use uh, to sort of acquire the habits of whiteness here. Uh, in order to assimilate uh, and and in order to rise and to kind of look down on African-Americans. So there's that tendency, I think, that can be, you know, harmful uh, for Indian-Americans. But there's also a broader political sort of um, empathy with the black community. And you can see that in stories of Indian nationalists who came here to the United States uh, like Lala Lajpatrai, mm-hmm. uh, who came in the early 20th century, formed contacts with NACP and W.E.B. Du Bois, the great leader of the NACP, or uh, Dr. Ambedkar, who preceded me to Columbia uh, and got right. his PhD from there, the father of the Indian Constitution. Um, so there are, of course, instances of um, Indians who came here and got involved in the civil rights movement, the Kriplanis went to the Highlander School and went mm. to uh, sessions with SNCC. Um, there were two Indian students at MIT who joined the Freedom Summer during the Civil Rights Movement. So there are instances of that too. But I think as a whole, uh, it's really important for Indian American immigrants to, to sort of recover that political legacy, you know, to understand those connections because we can easily distance our from the struggles of African-Americans uh, in an attempt to assimilate or to, to rise in, a, in the society in a, in a purely um, sort of uh, selfish and uh, short-sighted way. Um, on the other hand, I think the younger generation of Indian Americans, especially those who were born and brought up here, I've taught so many of them. They used to find me really amusing because they thought uh, I was more liberal than their parents who had been living in right. the United States for, for for decades. And I had just come from India. I was just 21 years old then. And uh, I grew up in India and um, I had ideas that, that their parents did not. And so they always found me very but I find these younger generations to be really inspirational. Um, I think like younger people, even amongst, you know, white Americans, your Americans, uh, they take 
the the Black Lives Matter movement far more seriously. They they are such great activists. They lead organizations uh, for civil rights and human rights. They come out in the streets and protest, uh, like many of their fellow Americans. So that gives me a lot of hope. You know, I see these younger generations of Indian Americans who are, you know, far more at home in the United States. They've all been born and brought up here, but they are far more aware also of racial disparities, of systemic racism. Um, it has hit the Indian American community many times too. Sure. In incidents against us, um, and I think uh, a greater realization of the commonalities uh, between our communities. And then, of course, Senator Kamala Harris kind of personifies that intersection, you know, through her own personal history and the fact that she is so proud of both her identities as uh, a South Asian, but also as an African-American. My guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Professor Manisha Sinha. After a quick break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about um, the political climate and what she's optimistic about going forward in 2020. Stay tuned. Dr. Amita Mundanchira, and you can check out ruckusavenueradio.com for more information and for the latest on station programming and more. So, everyone, welcome back. My guest today on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing is Manisha Sinha. Um, Manisha, you wrote in the New York Times uh, about why Kamala Harris matters to you as a nominee and that she represents. Um, a cosmopolitan interracial democracy that a majority of Americans uh, aspire to live in. And how would you thoughtfully explain this, perhaps, uh, to South Asians who may not be politically inclined with her or who may not identify with this kind of cosmopolitan lens? So I think so many of us now have made our homes uh, in the United States. Uh, and I think this is probably more true of people who have immigrated here like me, um, rather than those who have been born and brought up here. I think they feel a much greater stake in American society and democracy. But for the longest time, I would follow you know, politics and news in India rather than in the United States. Right. And then I thought that was really silly because here I had been in this country, uh, what was it, for over 10 years, I couldn't vote. Um, in my town, I live in a nice New England town uh, where we have, still have town meetings the way they, they did in co the colonial era. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of my neighbors and friends started asking me to, to join them in local town meetings. And I'd be like, oh, but I can't vote because I'm not a citizen. And right. uh, I decided that, you know, I really need to become more involved in American. 
American politics. Um, of course, I teach American history. So mm-hmm. for me, it was easy. Uh, but I do think that for most Indian Americans, especially those who have been born and brought up in India, they need to at sometimes shift their lens from politics back home, which, you know, there's no harm in following that and, and being concerned about that. I certainly still do. My, my sure. father was involved in politics in India. My, my brother was a diplomat and is now in the government. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's not a politician. He's a bureaucrat now. Um, my mother still lives in India. So I certainly follow everything that happens in India. But I think Indian Americans as a whole need to become far more involved in American politics. And we have actually, you, know, you see figures coming up. Uh, besides Kamala Harris, we have so many, you know, congressmen sure. and congresswomen. We have uh, people in all walks of life who are, you know, represented, certainly during the Obama administration. I remember seeing a lot of Indian faces mm-hmm. uh, in the Obama administration. Dr. Vivek Murthy, um, he's now involved in the Biden transition team. Sure. Um, it's it's nice to see that. And I think it's important for Indian Americans who have immigrated here, who may not feel that connected to American history or politics, to realize that this is their future and it's the future of their children and grandchildren and that they need to be involved. Particularly for those young South Asians and and those um, definitely young South Asian women, given this kind of climate that we've been experiencing, is, is there or should there be a sort of civic urgency to be more informed, be more engaged, and, and definitely this applies to their entire families, whether or not they are in alignment politically with each other, but just that general engagement. Um, what do you feel about that? Absolutely. I think it is important for uh, Indian women uh, to certainly be involved uh, precisely in the ways that I think Kamala Harris's mother was. Mm. Um, I was amazed to hear about her student days in Berkeley and how she immediately moved into activist circles uh, and how that influenced her in the way she raised her children. Um, I think it's so important for young women today uh, when we have people who would like to roll back and push back on not just black rights and rights of immigrants, but on women's rights um, to be involved. Um, And and there are a lot of them. You know, I think uh, there's so many figures that I see people like Vanita Gupta and others who are involved in, you know, there are others involved in the uh, you know, environmental movement. There are people involved in politics. Uh, in fact, they're more involved than I am. You know, I, I do the occasional donations and talks, et cetera. But, but the people who are really, you know, out there, phone banking, you know, knocking at doors, et cetera, there are a lot of young Indian American men and women doing that. But I think it's especially important for Indian American women at a time when, our rights might very well be uh, under assault in this country. Most Indian Americans know the story, the tragic story of that young Indian doctor in Ireland who died rather than be given uh, a life-saving abortion. Mm. Uh, And uh, we don't want the United States to become a place where we might have to face those kinds of situations uh, where decisions are taken out from the hands of citizens and doctors, you know, and their doc patients and their doctors. You would know well what I'm speaking about, Abhay. Sure. And, um, you know, those violations of very basic personal rights 
would be, you know, um, tragic for, for certainly for all women, including Indian American women. And I don't know if people know this, but um, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued for equality for women, you know, and no discrimination in the law on the basis of sex, she was using a constitutional amendment that had been passed after the Civil War to protect the rights of former slaves. Mm, yes. So again, shows how interconnected uh, we all are and how battles that have been won and fought a long time ago can have a repercussion. You know, I say that as a historian, of course, um, to our times and that it is important for us to continue fighting um, for those ideals and rights. Uh, as a historian, you're, you're more than, you know, have your right to be biased about um, bringing in a historical perspective. But I do um, also really thank the highlighting of why that urgency is there. And I do feel that, you know, what that, what that also is, is bringing about is a real urgency, no matter where you fit on your political alignment, just the idea of becoming engaged and listening um, is, is so critical. And because it's been such a um, tumultuous year uh, for us, um, you know, you're a South Asian American, you're a parent, um, given all the challenges of this year, and given how daunting um, things have been in a, in a year that's been filled with, you know, uh, a lot of anxiety, what are you optimistic about now as you um, go forward in 2020 and, and beyond? So I was um, actually really heartened by uh, the movement for Black Lives and the mass turnout in the streets. You know, anyone who's familiar with the history of India's nationalist movement or the civil rights movement here would recognize that, that, you know, democracy was being fought for in the streets. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was an effort to demonize these demonstrations, to see these people as as violent, etc. But, uh, you know, an overwhelming majority were peaceful demonstrations. It's exactly what Gandhiji talked about. It's exactly what Do Dr. King talked about and what Dr. Man uh, or Preston Mandela um, demonstrated in South Africa. So that gave me a lot of hope that ordinary American citizens felt so uh, moved by what had happened to George Floyd that they were out in the streets and demonstrating. And that became kind of a worldwide movement virtually. Um, and as a civil war historian, I was really happy to see all those awful Confederate statues finally come down. I never thought I'd see them all come down, but they did. Um, and, you know, it mattered to get these statues of people who defended slavery and who fought for white supremacy for that to come down, because I think they're standing rebuke, not just to black people, but also to immigrants, to people of color, to South Asians, to Latin Americans, you know, anyone uh, today who's fighting for, as you know, you pointed out what I called an interracial democracy, which is a long fight in the United States, going back to the abolition of slavery. So I felt very hopeful. When I, when I saw those things happening, I, I think it showed that people are concerned uh, about certain things and that they were willing to, to come out. In my tiny little New England town, which is really sleepy and there are no demonstrations here, trust me, sure. I've never seen one in, in, in you know, 30 years that I've lived here. 
um, there were Black Lives Matter signs in in people's in front of people's homes yeah. um, in, in a town that is over ninety percent white uh, in the town commons. I I never thought I'd see that. You know, I, I teach the university. I'm used to, you know, being in an academic environment where a lot of people might, you know, put up such signs or believe in such things. But in my town, which is relatively conservative uh, by Massachusetts standards, I, I didn't expect to see that. And so that was heartening to see. Um, I really think people should realize that this election is crucial um, most people know that the future of this country in a way hangs on this election. So I think it's really important for the Indian American community to to mobilize, to vote and to be out there uh, and to have their voices heard too. Uh, because, uh, you know, we are so well represented in positions of power now in this country and we should really be using that for some good. Uh, exactly the old Gandhian ideal to think beyond your personal self-interest and think of the common good. Well, that's um, something incredibly moving to be hopeful about. And Manisha, thank you so much for joining us. And we really appreciate all of your work. I hope you'll come back and join us again soon. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed that. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about people and their purpose in the South Asian diaspora. And what they're basically saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific on RuckusAvenueRadio.com.
Hi, this is Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Yo, this is Prabdeep from New Delhi, India, and you're listening to Rakas Avenue Radio.